Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with Dr. James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. Jim is the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, president of Serious Times, a ministry devoted to exploring the intersection of faith and culture, former professor of theology and culture at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where he also served as their fourth president, and the author of more than 20 books. I am your host, Alexis Dry, and I can't wait to dive into this week's conversation. So, something exciting happened earlier this week. Um, well, exciting for me. I was just mentioning to you. I don't know if it's ex- as exciting to you at this point, but your latest book, it was just released. It's called Hybrid Church, Rethinking the Church um, for a Post-Christian Digital Age. It was a great read, um, and as someone who is a part of both living out the reality that you describe, as well as the solution that you suggest, I can certainly testify to its effectiveness at MEC, um, which is the church that you founded, in case you're new to the podcast this week. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I want to dedicate today's podcast and several others, for that matter, because I don't think we're going to do the book and your ideas justice in just this short conversation. But I want to dedicate today to some of the subjects that you raise in the book. Um, But just for fun first, can you just tell a little bit about what motivated you to write it? Yeah, it's been, uh, you know, I, I, I have said it's three years in the writing, but a lifetime, a vocational lifetime in the making uh, in many ways. It, you know, I'm, I'm a student of culture and I, and I love studying culture and it's what I've, I've done in the world of academia and others. And I just, I just, that's, and I believe that's something that I am to do as a pastor is to be a student of culture. And um, in the past, I've written books on a number of things, Christian life and apologetics and, and such, but um, you know, the interplay of church and culture has been kind of one of my sweet spots. And, and, and so I've, I've, I've written books that have pinpointed or tried to pinpoint massive cultural change and, you know, uh, and, and trying to read that on the front end before it becomes an issue. And so, you know, uh, we talk about the rise of the nuns. I had the good fortune of actually writing the book, the rise of the nuns and, and getting out ahead of that and talking about that. And, and, and so writing about that massive cultural change, I wrote, Meet Generation Z, uh, when many people didn't know what Gen Z was, and 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 but I was sensing and I was studying and, I, and as a pastor I was studying these things, and so uh, but this book is the most significant cultural challenge of all. I've never written on anything this sweeping and this this historic, um, and um, and it was sweeping over everything in my own thinking and in my own uh, sense of thinking through strategies and leadership. I mean there was nothing that was going untouched by what I was picking up on, and 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 it was a it was a it was a seismic event of two things you know coming together so like uh, most of my books it started with my own study my own challenges as a leader and what i was sensing in culture what i was sensing needed to change here at, at mac as kind of a living laboratory and then um and then all of that research and work and and what we were doing here and my leadership here culminated in in, in writing this this book now I might be misremembering this, but I feel like I heard you say that of all of the books that you've written, and that's more than twenty books at this point, you can't recall ever having prayed more for a book than for this one. Am I first of all? Am I making that up? Or second, if I'm not, why did you say that? No, it's true. Okay. Uh, uh, you know, some of it might be my age. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that the you know, hopefully, the longer you walk with Christ, the more you realize how dependent you are uh, on prayer and, 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 um, and the importance and power of, of prayer. And, and, but, um, but I, I just so believe in the importance of this book. I, I do. I just, there's, 
the the importance of its ideas. I mean, not not so much the importance of it, like me as a writer or something like that, an ego thing. It's like the importance of its ideas is is what I, I believe in so strongly. So I have been praying for its ministry, um, and uh, that uh, I just so believe, and and you know this about me. I believe the church is the hope of the world, and I I so believe in the local church, and 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 so root for pastors and and the redemptive potential of churches. And, um, and I just believe that the ideas in this book, what this book is trying to chronicle, what's happening in our world and how we should best respond to it is so pivotal. I'm never going to see anything like this in my life. I haven't seen anything like this in my lifetime. I I probably won't again in my lifetime. And so, um, these ideas in the book are challenging, deeply challenging. And I know they're challenging. They may be the most challenging set of ideas I know that I've ever written or I've ever engaged personally, but they're absolutely critical for the church. Well, let's start talking about some of those ideas then, because you spend a, 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 the first part of the book, not the whole, like the first couple of chapters, bringing the reader up to speed on, let's just call it like the current state of the church and of religious faith. And you're pointing out that we live in a very rare moment of history, really charting new territory for Christianity, for the church. Can you expound a little bit more on that? I would contend that there have only been, and again, there, there's there's so many ways to do the flow of history, you can do it from a 30,000 foot level or a three foot level and get in the weeds and both have their merits. Um, but let's, let's look at this from a 30,000 foot level. I would contend there've only been three main areas, uh, over the roughly 2000 year history of the Christian church in regard to spiritual context and communication. Those two things, spiritual context and communication mission field and how we communicate to that mission field. The first marked uh, the beginning of the church. The first of those eras, following Pentecost, the early church faced a largely uh, pagan culture and embodied a pre-modern form of communication. The kind of church that evolved to meet that challenge is what I just termed Church 1.0. Uh, church 1.0 was deeply organic; it was communal in its nature. It met in homes. It often faced persecution. Uh, leadership was strong. Authority was established, but structure itself was fairly loose-knit. Uh, communication was almost entirely oral in nature. Uh, even when a letter, say, from the Apostle Paul arrived at the church at Ephesus or wherever it might have arrived and he sent it, even though it was a written letter, it would have been read to the church. That was the, the nature of the engagement. He stood up and read that letter to the church. Evangelism was largely designed for Jews, Judaizing Gentiles, and pagans, those three groups. Churches linked together but largely reflected their immediate context, which is why there's so much diversity in the different churches within the New Testament. I mean, uh, my goodness, the context at Corinth versus the context at Rome were two radically different contexts and two radically different churches. But in all the churches, signs and wonders flowed fairly frequently uh, and freely, particularly early on, authenticating the early proclamation of the gospel. When combined with an emphasis on personal evangelism and service to the poor and the vulnerable, numbers exploded. By 100 AD, there were probably around estimates of 7,500 followers. By the mid 300s, more than three uh, or more than 30 million uh, called themselves uh, followers of Christ. And that's that's massive. Uh, and then everything changed. Uh, the growth and influence of the Christian movement, particularly after the conversion of the Roman Emperor Constantine in the year 310, uh, began to transform the West from a pagan culture to a Christian culture. Uh, but that wasn't the only thing that changed. Uh, so did communication which evolved from mere language to writing, and then the writing then became mechanized, but it was all writing. So how did the church respond to that? 
What kind of church emerged to meet the challenge of not only a changed spiritual context, but new forms of communication, of going from persecuted minority to dominant cultural majority, from a largely oral world to one of written and even mechanized writing world? Well, let's call that Church 2.0. Church 2.0 spanned a very long section. Again, when you look at it from a 30,000 foot level, very long section of church history, Christian history from the early Middle Ages uh, all the way through to the time known as the Enlightenment and up until even very recently in our own era. Uh, while much changed happened during that time, one thing did not, which was the centrality of the church in the Christian faith. And we're talking about the Western context. What this meant was that rather than contending for Christ in a marketplace of ideas, uh, much less in the face of persecution, the church of the West operated in a context of cultural dominance, if not outright control. As for communication, the scriptures were canonized. Uh, their propagation was largely confined to written language, Greek, Hebrew, later the Latin Vulgate under Jerome, and then eventually German with Luther and beyond and various other translations. This meant that communication went from primarily oral to primarily written. And in terms of communication, it obviously, as I mentioned, then became mechanized writing. So it's no surprise that the very first book of Gutenberg revolutionary printing press was the Bible. Uh, in 1454. Um, and so we're now living in the midst of a seismic change as the culture of the West moves from Christianity to uh, post-Christianity, from Christian to post-Christian. Uh, with as strong of a grip as the church and the Christian faith had on culture for more than a millennia, it has taken from the Enlightenment era really until now for the change from the sacred to the secular, from Christian to post-Christian to take hold. On the communication front, while it's happened much more quickly in its development, it manifested itself almost simultaneously, though, with the change in culture's context, the shift from mechanized writing to electronic encoding. So we're now living in a post-Christian digital world. It was Christian, I mean, pre-Christian oral, then Christian written, and now it's post-Christian digital. So what kind of church will rise to meet that challenge of that changing mission field and the way to communicate to that mission field. And I propose Church 3.0. Church 3.0 is a church that embraces the new um, cultural terrain, one that is post-Christian and the new way of communicating, which is digital. Knowing that you're trying to reach a post-Christian world, not pre-Christian or Christian, and knowing that you have to do it digitally, that that's the new language, if you will, will prove to be, and this is an overused phrase, but it fits uh, this particular situation. This is a paradigm shift of seismic proportions. And as I've attempted to argue, it's only the third missional era in the 2000 year history of the church. By missional era, I mean, this is only the third type of mission field we have faced and only the third change in the nature of communication to that mission field that we've had to navigate in our 2000 year history. Now think about that. So this is not an insignificant thing. In terms of spiritual climate and the nature of communication, this is only the third great cultural revolution in light of our mission since the birth of the church itself. Uh, this change has happened so fast that we're having to, what's the old line, fly the plane as we build it. Uh, this change, this new era has come in the span of a historical nanosecond. Uh, we live in a profoundly different context than we did even 20 years ago. Uh, which is why it is so important for the church to wake up immediately to this new set of realities. I don't know if you remember, there's an old um, uh, kind of analogy. I think it was called the frog in the kettle. 
And the idea is that if you place a frog in a pot of water and slowly warm the temperature of the water to a boiling point, it kind of fools the frog and the gradual nature of the change won't be noticed until it's too late before the, for the frog to jump out before it's boiled alive. And that was often used as a way, I think it was George Barna who wrote a book called The Frog in the Kettle. It was a good book way back in its day. And it was a way of getting churches to wake up to the slowly warming waters of change before it was too late. Our situation is more akin to a frog in a microwave. Uh, we're not easing into this. It's not a gradual change. It's been sudden and abrupt, which means we've had to adapt and we have to adapt quickly. We just can't do church in a 1.0 or 2.0 way, but we can do 3.0. And that means going hybrid. Well, I think you've just given language to what so many within the church context, whether that's you know working or just um, attending, I've really felt that. I've really felt the abruptness of the change that's been happening. And so your solution to that is, as you've mentioned, embracing a hybrid mentality. Now, we understand like a hybrid workplace, thanks to COVID. Um, and we even understand like, you know, hybridity from a consumer mindset, you know, like um, I place an order online for groceries and then I go to the actual store to pick them up. Okay. But can you define for our listeners, what do you mean by a hybrid church? Okay. There's a short answer and there's a long answer. Uh, the long answer is found in the book. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. there's a lot to unpack, but here's the short answer that the book tries to unpack. A hybrid church is being uh, a community of faith and being a church for the unchurched and simultaneously having a physical and a digital presence. In other words, it's, 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 it's the addressing the mission field and the way you communicate to that mission field. And it's a hybrid of both. It's not being solely digital or solely online. That would be a digital church, not a hybrid church or a meta church, as some might say. A hybrid church is both embodied and online, both digital and physical. And in terms of who it is trying to serve, it is both the Christian and the non-Christian. Uh, the already convinced and the skeptic, the person who is ready to grow and the person who is ready to explore. We've made these dichotomies when they aren't. It's not, hey, are you physical or digital? It's it's both. The answer is yes. It's not whether you're trying to serve the church or the unchurched. It's it's both. Well, okay. So let's talk about what that looks like in practice. I mean, let's just take a traditional weekend service. Um, what does it mean to make that hybrid? See, I would not begin with a weekend service because a weekend service is 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 um, comes at the tail end of an awful lot of online stuff before you even got to a physical service in our day. But let me let me take your question at face value, because um, because I bet again people don't begin with a weekend service anymore; they begin online. In fact, let me go ahead and tell you the four assumptions about that before we get into that. First, people do want to check a church out online before attending in person, just like they want to check everything else out online first, from who they date to where they shop. Uh, second, they may attend um, or view online for months before an in-person visit, even if they feel the need to do an in-person visit at the end of those several months of investigation. Third, they want to be able to interact with people online and interact with you as a church online. And finally, they're accustomed to being served digitally in almost every way. That's just an assumption that they're going to be served digitally. Um, but let's take that last assumption. That brings us to a weekend or in-person service and what it means to be hybrid there, which is um, just a small slice. I want to keep emphasizing that a very small slice of what it means to be a hybrid church. But again, I want to be true to your question uh, of a weekend in-person service, what that might look like. The key word is being fidgetal. Uh, and the word fidgetal comes from the combination of physical and digital. 
And it is applied to spaces where those two come together seamlessly. So what is a fidgetal experience like if you were to come to a weekend service? Let's, well, let's think outside of the church first and then come back to the church. Um, and you mentioned this. It's ordering your groceries online and then picking them up in person. It's touchless pay when you fill up your car with gas. It's, it's scanning a QR code at a restaurant and that pulls up the menu. It's checking in for a flight first at a kiosk and then approaching the physical desk to submit your luggage or check your bags. We're all very familiar with this kind of fidgetal world and how going fidgetal, fidgetal does not represent the elimination of bricks and mortar. Uh, but rather the importance of having what we do physically integrate with what we do digitally. And ideally to have those two create a synergy. Now let's bring this to the church. And something as simple as having a church app, you know, your phone in your hand and encouraging people to use it as they attend. At MEC, our app seamlessly integrates with physical events and services. Uh, you can use it to check your children in to our children's ministry. You can pre-order a drink. Uh, at uh, from our coffee shop. You can listen to a weekend message or catch up on a series before you attend. You can register for a class such as at the Mech Institute. You can find out what the name of that song was that we just did and use in worship and even download it to your streaming. You can order a book from a bookstore, bookstore that was mentioned. Even before the, you're leaving the building, you can submit a prayer request to a prayer team. You can send a question out to a pastor. You can send out an evite to friends to say, hey, you got to come to this next week and join me and check this out, or maybe check out the service online later today uh, while there's time to catch it. Uh, you can explore suggested next steps for what exploring that weekend's message might have in terms of recommended reading. But it's not simply an app that makes an in-person event uh, at a building fidgetal. Throughout our building, for example, I'm keeping it weekend-centric, in-person-centric, um, there are QR codes all over the place, whether on screens or, or on signs. It can be scanned for more in information on a particular ministry or event. Guests may get a push notification from our side related to their experience, such as a next step just as they are leaving. And so, you know, this is just the smallest taste. I can't emphasize that enough of what it can mean to have a hybrid church experience as part of an in-person weekend service, much less a small taste of what it means to be a hybrid church in general. I know that you have heard some pushback to what you're describing because you even mentioned it in your book. You quote pastor and author John MacArthur and his sentiments about how an online church does not count as a church. It's just watching TV. And I've been in enough conferences and meetings with you um, to have picked up on just the sense of uneasiness that some people feel when you talk about bringing the church into the digital realm as if those two cannot coexist or shouldn't, as if that's like, con yeah, it seems like a uncomfortable pairing for some. And yet I also know you well enough to know that you wouldn't recommend it if it didn't pass what you feel like is a test of orthodoxy and mission. So how do you usually respond or how, how might you respond to that criticism? There are so many critiques and concerns that can be brought to bear on the church and uh, warnings even as she enters the digital age. And I understand them. And I walk through several of them in the book. Uh, some are very legitimate. Uh, some are not. I would dare say the majority or not. Um, probably the one that is the most voiced is just kind of this glib, well, you just can't do church online. You can't do church online. Um, of course, no one is saying to do it entirely online. <laughs> that's why I use the word hybrid. Uh, but that's the caricature. You know, it's not church, it's just watching TV, or there's nothing about that that fills the biblical definition of coming together. We're only the church when we are together. And I, I just have to, um, you know, respectfully disagree. 
uh, not just simply as a pastor, but as a theologian. Uh, while wanting to hold high the value of many embodied aspects of communal life, the idea of having to do everything physically to fulfill scripture, it just simply isn't true. And let's go ahead and deal with, you know, the big kind of elephant in the room. The passage is most often brought out about this, which is in Hebrews uh, chapter 10, which says, let us consider how we may spur one another on with good deeds and let us not forsake the meeting together of one another as some are in the habit of doing. You know, that's, I think I'm close to what that says. I don't have it memorized, but that's the gist of it. From this, many conclude that meeting together in Christian community for in-person worship services is being biblically mandated. This is a violation of that command. Uh, now, there's little doubt that we are to be worshipers, both public and private, and that one of the marks of the early church was gathering together to do just that. You find that in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47 and other places throughout Acts. But this was not what the author of Hebrews was maintaining at all. Uh, the author wasn't talking about gathering physically for corporate worship or gathering physically for any church event, right? Honest. Instead, the author of Hebrews is speaking directly about not giving up on relationships and not giving up on people. It was a, it was a clarion call for the need to be faithful to interpersonal relationships as Christians with other Christians. Uh, corporate worship was not the context. Corporate worship was not the subject. Uh, that's eisegesis, not exegesis. That is not what it says, ripping that verse out of context. It was all about the importance of Christians uh, spurring one another on, encouraging one another to not give up doing that in the context of a world that demands perseverance and demands us, you know, you know, uh, encouraging each other on in the face of persecution. That was the meaning. And that, that and the fact that that was the meaning is heightened further by if you do a study, which I've done on the Greek word that was used there for giving up, you know, don't give up meeting together. Uh, and that translation, the, the Greek word translated giving up is a word used specifically for desertion and abandonment. Uh, in other words, uh, don't abandon each other relationally. You just need each other's support if you're going to get through this. It was the same word used by Paul when writing to Timothy about being personally deserted by Demas. And then a few sentences later about everyone personally deserting him. It was also used by Paul in his second letter to the Corinthians when speaking of being hard pressed on every side and but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but you know, not abandoned. Most pointedly, uh, it was a word uttered by Jesus about his feeling of abandonment at the cross by the father at the moment of his crucifixion. In every single case of the use of that word, the issue was the betrayal of an individual. The betrayal of a personal relational commitment that left another person feeling abandoned. The point of the verse is that we should not pull back from engaging one another relationally in ways that would stir us on to greater levels of love and good works. To never fail to be you know, that iron against iron that Proverbs talks about. Taking this verse, much less that Greek word, and making it about compulsory in-person public worship services has even been designated by some as one of the great urban legends of the New Testament. Uh, it has less to do with going to church service than it does keeping an appointment with a friend in need at Starbucks, which is more the point. <clears throat> Second, let's challenge ourselves that not everything that we have historically done in person has to be done in person. Even what the author of Hebrews was calling for, even, even that personal encouragement level. You know, I can support and I can encourage someone virtually as well as physically, um, unless their need is a physical one. Uh, we need to be careful not to take how we have done things, how we have understood things, and make it normative. That includes what we have traditionally done in person. 
the mistake would be to assume that if we have always done something in person, it can only be done and must continue to be done in person. Yet younger generations have the bulk of their community, not to mention their communication within that community online. And we can say, well, you can't do community that way. And they'll only say, well, sorry uh, to tell you this, but you can and we do. Uh, the discipline is to think through everything you have done in person, uh, gathered in a physical location, often on a weekend to do, and ruthlessly evaluate whether it just might have a digital counterpart or a digital manifestation. Uh, you might be surprised how much does. The reality is that for years now, long before COVID, almost every human was living in this kind of slipstream between digital and uh, in real life interactions. And it's just been accelerated of late. And two last thoughts on that, that I, I, I will just say, I, I always say to my, often have said to my graduate students, um, when it comes to certain subjects, be really careful that you don't build theological fences around personal taste. You know, what you like, your sensibilities, and then you start building a biblical theological case for it when really it's just your taste. You know, I don't like communicating online, or I don't find community online, or I don't want to do church that way, or I don't think an online campus is going to work because I don't like it, or I don't want to read it on Kindle. I don't want to, you know, I want to hold the book. Okay, but just acknowledge that those are your sensibilities. And that, quite frankly, they don't reflect the bulk of the world, the vast majority of the world. And for church leaders, I'll run the risk of being even more pointed. Don't let your desire for a live crowd and what that might do for you personally start to dictate how you feel it's best to minister and what you guilt trip or, or shame base or, you know, admonish your people to do in the name of Scripture. When it might be more about just you're kind of used to teaching that way, speaking that way, you you enjoy that. And, and we just have to be careful about checking a lot of stuff at the door in this digital age. Well, I don't I don't want to give up yet on. I, I, want, I want to press a little bit more on this whole idea of hybrid community life. And maybe this is just for our listeners who, I don't know, are like millennials, me and older, who, 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 who can think back as to what community and relationship was like before the internet, right? But I guess I think what a lot of people are struggling with is, yes, you can do things online to connect with people, but how do you do that in such a way that feels authentic to the way that the early church demonstrated like a radically different type of community to the rest of the world? It just feels difficult. Like how does a hybrid model of community, what does a hybrid model of community life look like? Yeah. Well, there's so much to be said here about community and the hybrid model. And I have an entire section on it in the book that incorporates multiple chapters and so there's no way I can do that full justice in this, but I'll force myself as a result to limit my response to your question again, which is does, what does community life in a hybrid model look like? Well, it looks hybrid, uh, meaning it's both physical and digital. Don't immediately think it's just digital. I can't wrap my around just digital community. No, it's physical and digital community. And the challenge is for people to understand that the digital community is real, that that side of it works, that side of it is something truly manifest. In some ways, those who experience it and will say that it's even a deeper and more meaningful community than they had in person before. And let me let me let me talk about that a little bit because this seems counterintuitive, but there's so much out there that's anecdotal. So let's cut through the anecdotal and let's actually get to some studies. Recent findings from the State of the Bible survey found that hybrid churches that offer both online and in-person services had higher percentages of people strongly agreeing that the church services, 
meaning ones that were both online and in person together, you know, you had a choice, uh, connected them to other people better. So people had just had in-person services, did not feel as well connected as churches that had both in person and online. So that's interesting. See, what is changing in our world is more about um, is about more than just the use of digital platforms uh, and to interact. It's how the digital revolution has changed. And, and hang with me here, you old timer millennial you. <laughs> it's how the digital revolution has changed what being in community even means. For example, the percentage of young people who said their favorite way to talk to friends is face-to-face, declined from 49% to 32% over the last six years. That's staggering. Uh, There's just a fundamental shift taking place in the way people communicate with each other. There was a Squarespace survey that found that younger generations think online presence is more important than in-person interactions. It's simply a fact that community is being forged digitally before it is being forged physically if it is even being forged physically at all. And it can be even more authentic than what in-person or face-to-face community has been for their life. And this is something that, one of the things I talk about in the book, fascinating piece of research, and if they're, and if what I'm getting ready to get into is of interest to people, they'll want to dig into this part of the book uh, because um, it really is fascinating. It was research from Stanford University's Social Media Lab. And they found that for every individual, uh, there are two online worlds the inside world and the outside world. The inside world included the people that, they, that, that we know, that are inside our social network. They are our family, they're our friends, they're our coworkers, they're our inside, our inner circle. The second world is the stream of digital information just flowing into our lives from sources that we do not know personally, tweets and news articles and social media comments, and that's the outside world. The research from Stanford found that there is more honest communication with those close to us online if it's happening in our inside world than if it was face-to-face in person. It is. Uh, There's an important distinction uh, in terms of evaluating online interaction. Many who are dismissive of anything meaningful occurring online just tend to think of the outside world engagements, the outside world engagements and not the inside world engagements, where Sanford found it's much easier to be caught lying and more detrimental if you are, for example. And so you tend to be more honest. Um, Yet it is the inside world that those who experience community online, that's what they're speaking of. They're talking about their inside world online, not their outside world. Uh, Because of this new starting point, uh, to engage people in community is gonna begin, take a whole new approach. It used to be that whatever churches did um, digitally was designed to serve the physical, meaning in-person physical events and activities. The digital was used to market. It was used to give information about or offer registration for physical stuff. Going forward, the church is going to have to invert that approach and have the physical serve the digital. As is often noted, businesses and churches will need to become digital organizations with physical locations. In other words, churches will be digital organizations with physical expressions, not physical organizations with a digital presence. We need to move away from a focus on gathering and move toward a focus on connecting. We've bet the farm on gathering people together in a building, and that's just a bet that's not going to play out in the days to come. Uh, It's not playing out terrifically now, 
even post-COVID, which accelerated all these things that we're talking about. Instead, we need to invest in connecting people in whatever way they are willing to connect with us and with each other. And right now, and for the foreseeable future, that's going to be digital. It's going to be done digitally, uh, even if it's just a starting point. And, and let's stretch our thinking even more. And then I'll, I'll, I'll try to bring this to a close. This doesn't mean that we don't gather together. It's rethinking how we gather together and the very definition of gathering. Uh, it may not be physically in a building. Thousands gathered this past weekend at Mech. We, we talked to each other. We engaged one another. We experienced a shared worship and teaching with each other. Uh, phone numbers and emails were exchanged. Plans were made to connect over coffee. Uh, we gave of our resources and we prayed with and for one another. Pastors were pastoring. Counselors were counseling. People gave their lives to Christ. Uh, it's just that most of it happened outside of a gathering in a building. It was through a community gathering through an online campus. But it still happened. And it was very, very real. Um, Jesus clearly said, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with them. What he never said was the manner of that gathering. Well, you may have just answered my question, but I'm going to ask it again for just clarity's sake. But I guess I'm wondering, is the hybrid church then specifically in, I guess not, I was going to say, is it specifically an evangelistic tool or is it also a means for discipleship? So in other words, is the goal to reach people where they are in digital spaces, but then eventually invite them into like a physical embodied expression of their faith as they grow closer to God? Or can they stay online the whole time and continue to grow as a disciple of Jesus? All right, short answer. Uh, this or, or this short answer, then I might unpack a bit of it. This isn't just about reaching people, but about discipling them as well. In fact, it's about the entire mission of the church, evangelism, discipleship, ministry, worship, community, you know, the entire flywheel. Uh, the goal is not to reach them. And, and here's another answer to your question is directly as I know how. The goal is not to reach them online solely to get them to attend or be involved in person. That's not. It's to be hybrid, a combination of both, and to be okay with being hybrid. Think about something like a seminary. They can deliver theological education uh, through a three-year residential program in a bricks and mortar school as they have for almost all of their history until late. Or they can offer online education and online degrees. There's little doubt that the three-year residential program has a lot of benefits, but like people choosing a streaming service over still buying CDs, it isn't how most people want to listen to their educational music. Today, graduate students are often older, and they've got families, they've got economic responsibilities, and they need to pursue graduate degrees on a part-time basis. This also means they're not able to uproot and relocate to another city. So online is simply how and where. It's not just where most people want to learn, it's where they have to learn. There, there, there's really not an option. It dominates every other educational tributary into our life as well, from TED Talks to Google searches to online do-it-yourself tutorials to YouTube instructional videos, seminaries have had to rethink their delivery systems. This is also true for churches. Increasing numbers of people are uh, downloading and listening to podcasts and watching online services and taking online courses. And the church needs to deliver discipleship and instruction in ways that reaches people. Um, there's no, you know, and if somebody says, well, you know, you don't have to remind me of the importance of touch in a high-tech world. Uh, or that the true nature of spiritual formation can never be truly achieved virtually. Uh, I agree that there is much that should be life on life and, and life doing life with others. But again, I'm calling for hybrid, 
not digital alone, hybrid. Uh, so does that mean, though, that there's no role for digital learning or digital discipleship at all? Let me give an example that's going to be near and dear to your heart because we did it together. You and I, uh, one of the many offerings of the Mech Institute that we partnered on, you, you did the lion's share of this and lion's share of the writing and such, and you, you're just ridiculously gifted on that. But you and I developed an online systematic theology course. I wrote and taught the course, filmed it over the course of several weeks, and it ended up being seven installments of around 45 minutes each. Uh, you created a wonderful workbook to go along with the course and students enrolled and participated in the class over lunch for seven weeks. Uh, as part of the class, though the teaching was pre-recorded, you had arranged this, this was your idea. I joined the class live in order to answer any questions you might have. We've offered that class before. I've taught systematic theology for years. Uh, in that single class, we reached more people through that online offering than we would have in person. May, we may have reached more people through that one offering, online offering than we had through all the other classes combined. And that's why so many of the offerings of the Mech Institute are online. It's not all we do with discipleship is, and not everything is online, but I, I hope people get the point. Digital learning is about far more than just tech. In reality, it's, it's more a way of, of learning than any single type of learning requiring this organization-wide mindset shift to be truly successful. Mm. Well, as I mentioned, I know we'll have more podcast conversations about some of the specific challenges and potential solutions of being a church in a post-Christian digital age. Um, but for the sake of time, I, let's wrap up with one final question. What are the alternatives to going hybrid? In other words, do you think that someone might listen to this and think like this is a take it or leave it approach or like among many viable approaches? Or do you feel like all churches could should consider this? All right. Um, I think there's all kinds of ways to be hybrid. I think whether or not you go hybrid is not the question. I think all churches have to go hybrid. There's a lot of variety under that umbrella. It doesn't have to look like how MEC does it, but going hybrid, yes, change or die, do it or die. This is not a fad. This is not a model among other models. Uh, this is rest, uh, rooted in a major cultural change that cannot be ignored by any church. It is a now a post-Christian digital world. The mission field has changed. How we communicate that mission field has changed. You have to go hybrid in some form or you will die. Mm. I thank you for taking the time to, to start off the conversation from your book in this way. I'm oh, can, I, can I say something? Cause I can already, I can already hear the responses. Okay, sure. You, you know, you know, we're talking about the church and the Holy Spirit's not gonna let the church die and mm. the church is going to live forever and, and all that, you know, but what's interesting is, is that, you know, that verse, the horse is made ready for the battle, but victory rests with the Lord. There is an obligation on us to make ready for the battle. And if you study church history, you know that the Holy Spirit has allowed churches to die who refuse to change. And so it's not a question about the Holy Spirit running amok. It's not a question about the power of God. It's a question about the Holy Spirit gave us brains and rationale. And if we're not willing to change to reach the mission field, that shows that we're not having a heart for the mission. And so we're not being potentially led by the Holy Spirit. And when you do that, yes, churches will die. 
Well, I was thank you for that. I was just going to add too. Like, I really hope that if you're listening and you don't work at a church, I mean, yes, Jim and I both work in full time vocational ministry, but I, I still hope that you realize that this book is just as much for you. And I feel like Jim gives so much language in this book that you might want to bring to your own church. I mean, you're you're a part of this too. It's not just the people who work at your church who, whose job this is, right? Like, you're a part of bringing you know the Christian faith into the digital post Christian realm as well. So this gives you so many tools as to how you can do that and to have these conversations at your own church. So um, yeah, whether you work in ministry or just you're faithfully attending a church or you're like, gosh, I am new to all of this, but I wish my church were doing these things. Um, I mean, this would be such a valuable book for you to pick up. So we will certainly link it in the show notes. Um, um, you can grab it on Amazon. You can grab it from hopefully hopefully your local bookstore. But um, yeah, so Jim, thank you for this. Like I said, I have a feeling we'll come back to this book a few more times um, in future podcasts guest episodes, but we'll wrap it up for now. So thank you guys for joining us.